0: Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for joining us today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. One of the most important skills we can develop in life is learning how to relate to our strong thoughts, feelings, and emotions. Accepting them, experiencing them authentically, and then also learning how to regulate them. And we're all going to have times when those feelings are particularly strong and maybe even a bit harder to manage than normal. It's very common to have these natural fluctuations in how we feel about others or ourselves. But some people struggle with this more than others. A clinically significant form of this is known as borderline personality disorder, or BPD, which is characterized by a real pattern of instability in a person's emotions, moods, behavior, even their self-image, and their relationships. BPD is actually fairly common— and even more common are very normal challenges with emotional sensitivity, stability, and regulation. So today we're going to be diving into what borderline tendencies are and what we can do about them. To help us do that, I'm joined as usual by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, best-selling author, and he's also my dad. So dad, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great, Forrest, and extremely happy that
0: we're going to be talking about this subject yeah, I think it's a really important one. I'm looking forward to it. I've been digging into a bit of research, and I'm excited to learn a bit more from you. But before we get into it, a couple of quick reminders. Uh, first, remember to subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're currently listening to it on. That really does help us out. And then, second, you can find us on Patreon. It's Patreon.com/slash/beingwellpodcast, and for the cost of a few dollars a month. You can support the show and you'll receive bonuses like deep dives into the research behind each episode, transcripts, and ad-free versions of everything that we make. So I would love to start today with you just explaining what it means to have borderline tendencies, maybe going all the way up to what full-blown borderline personality disorder looks like.
1: Of all the major identified personality styles, we could say, or tendencies that are problematic in the sense of creating distress for the person who is acting them out and swept away by them, as well as dysfunction in relationships, in jobs, and so forth. So we have these two elements, distress and or dysfunction, that are the underpinnings of the other D word used in psychiatry and clinical psychology, quote unquote, disorder. This, among other such things, such as paranoid personality disorder or obsessive compulsive disorder is one of the most difficult to talk about. It's complicated, it's slippery, it's murky, and its history is marked by a tremendous amount of patriarchy, frankly, and pathologizing of young women in particular who had every reason and right in the world to be royally pissed off (laughs) about their (laughs) situation, and they'd had it up to here. So the roots of this yeah, way of looking at things are really fraught. So we had to be kind of sensitive. The other aspect of it is that there's kind of a disconnect between the official checklist account in the Bible of psychiatric and psychological classifications, which I'll get into in a minute. And on the other hand, what it feels like from the inside out and what it Mm. feels like to be with someone whose underlying borderline-ish module is in full activation. So Mm. I hope we can move back and forth between this more orthodox, outside-in clinical description and really emphasize more in a compassionate and empathic way from the inside out, what it's like and why it's this way, and especially what we can do ourselves. If, for various reasons, we have these tendencies, just factually, okay, what can we do about it? So that's sort Mm -hmm. of my framing here. And you can tell I'm backing my way into this one a little
0: (laughs) more carefully (laughs) than I usually do. I think that's really appropriate here for all of the reasons that you alluded to as you were giving that that introduction to what we're going to be talking about today. And please correct me on this if I'm wrong about any of it, Dad, because I'm doing this from memory right now and I'm not a clinician, so yeah. please. My understanding is that a lot of this actually finds its roots in Freud's work with hysterics in the early 1900s. Mm-hmm. That word hysteric itself has a lot of gendered yeah. loading associated yeah, with that's it. That's right. And then eventually this work got kind of categorized and codified as what became known as emotional dysregulation disorder, Mm, which then over time got turned into what we now know as borderline personality disorder through a long process of codification and the moving around of these various diagnoses. And maybe we could have a conversation sometime in the future, Dad, about The DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is the Bible that you were referring to earlier, the Bible of psychology and psychiatry, and what goes into that and what contributes to something being included or not included in that, which can have a whole bunch of impacts, including in what somebody can get covered by insurance, which certainly in the United States is a major contributor to how treatment works. So, this is kind of thorny territory talking about this at all, but it's just a fact that there are people who struggle a bit more with emotional regulation than others. And this shows up out in the world and has consequences in our relationships. So it's an important thing to talk about, but it's also, like you were saying, kind of fraught here.
1: Maybe a way in is to start with the nine so-called symptoms or criteria in the standard checklist. And five of them being really consistent for a person are the diagnostic criteria. It's, it's a box score way of diagnosing people. That's the system that's used in the DSM, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which itself is quite controversial because this approach to categorizing people in ways that are extremely consequential, including ways that historically have led to people being locked up. And there are people who think that this whole approach, kind of the box score criteria is wrong, that we need to have something that's more grounded in a developmental theory of the case, and this is something that many people have talked about and are working on. All that said, so let's do the box score. And we're talking here about a chronic pervasive pattern that crosses relationships, crosses situations, and crosses times. It's not a passing sort of thing based on the worst date of your life. It's more like we're talking about something quite consistent, so that said, one, frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment. Two, a pattern of unstable and intense interpersonal relationships characterized by alternating between extremes of idealization and devaluation. Three, identity disturbance, markedly and persistently unstable self-image or sense of self. Four, impulsivity in at least two areas that are potentially self-damaging such as spending sex substance abuse reckless driving binge eating etc 5 recurrent suicidal behavior gestures or threats or self-mutilating behavior 6 emotional instability due to a marked reactivity of mood in other words the mood is really variable such as intense episodic dysphoria, irritability, or anxiety, usually lasting a few hours and only rarely more than a few days. Emotional volatility. Seven, chronic feelings of emptiness, something missing inside, unfulfilled longing, a kind of deep, deep, deep hole in the heart, as I've talked about for myself when I was a kid. Eight, inappropriate intense anger or difficulty controlling anger. Nine, Transient, sometimes, stress-related, paranoid ideation, you know, paranoid thinking, or even severe dissociative symptoms, a sense of going far, far away, becoming really unglued inside, things start seeming somewhat unreal. Okay, those are the nine. And for me, the fundamental framing in helpfulness and mental health is what, why, and how. What I mean by that is What is characteristic, including in comparison to a relevant group that you might belong to, like a person that age, that gender, that situation in society, and that's the what. How extreme is it? What's present and how extreme is it? Second, why is it? Is it situational? Is it grounded in a really, really rocky childhood? Does it seem organically, even genetically rooted, distinct? from upbringing or environmental factors. You know, why is it the case? Because the why drives the how to help.
0: Yeah, I think that what I'm interested in here is that those are the diagnostic criteria. As you were saying, in order to receive a BPD diagnosis from a clinician, somebody would need to meet 5 of those criteria on a regular basis in a number of different situations. Of course, I wanna give a quick note here that nothing that we are dispensing on this podcast constitutes medical advice. And to actually get diagnosed, you should always work with a clinician. And in general, I just think that people are way too free about casually diagnosing both themselves and other people with significant conditions. You just see it all the time these days, where someone will kind of offhandedly refer to somebody else as a narcissist or way too OCD, or they'll just like use technical terminology in a very casual framework. And I actually think that there are some pitfalls with that that can be pretty significant. Hundred percent. So I would just really caution people against doing that. But that being said, we do want to dispense some helpful advice here on the podcast in general, and it can be really useful to look at that list and get a sense for huh, yeah, this feels like something that could maybe characterize a pattern of things that I struggle with or a pattern of things that somebody I know and care about also struggles with. So with that as the framework here, I do think it would be really helpful to get a sense of what this looks and feels like on a day-to-day basis outside of that formal diagnostic framework.
1: Yeah. Imagine that either you are or that you are being with a two to three-year-old child Mm. who is really upset after having been separated or facing separation from a beloved caregiver, let's say a parent. And this little child is just kind of coming unglued, is really upset and is both clinging and complaining, or clinging and punishing. They want very intensively the caregiver to stay or to come back. And they're also really angry at the caregiver for separating from them, including in an almost primal sense of the caregiver differentiating or having an identity or life of their own, because that feels catastrophically destabilizing inside for the child. How does a three-year-old get there? Typically, it's a combination of nature and nurture. Typically, there's a combination, on the one hand, of a often very sweet and interpersonally engaged, very sociable temperament, combined with lots of sensitivity to what's happening outside them and what's happening inside them, and often with a fair amount of anxiety in the mix. So that's kind of on the inside, of the kid. And then on the outside, often, it's a parent who unwittingly promotes uh, anxious, insecure attachment, a parent Mm -hmm. who draws the child close and then pushes the child away, a child who themselves is unreliable and unstable, one moment they're charming and wonderful and just so great, next moment they're drunk or they're gone or they're preoccupied with their partner and their own potentially borderline-ish hungers for their partner. And sometimes a parent who alternates between idealization and devaluation, between cherishing and horrible punishments, even abusive ones. When you have an invasive, disruptive parent or invasive, disruptive environments, poverty, Mm -hmm. disengaged, or intermittently engaged, let's say, male parent figures, siblings who come in and come out, being someone who's in foster care, moving through multiple placements and never really finding stability. You know, there's this combination of the two together. And I really think it's incredibly important to bring in these dimensions of the innate genetically rooted temperament of the person and often a catastrophically unhelpful environment of all kinds, including an environment that, I mean, basically, most parents don't wake up in the morning thinking to themselves, how can I promote anxious, insecure attachment? You know, how can mm-hmm. I promote mm-hmm. borderline tendencies inside my my child? They don't. They're, they themselves are grappling with a lot of stuff. But at the end of the day, as you kind of started out, facts are facts, what is, is, whatever it might be. And the result can be then this image of a three-year-old who's kind of falling apart, both tantruming and clinging, and really, really suffering inside. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, that three-year-old grows up, and here we are today. So kind
0: of looking in the here and now at ways in which the adult version of that tendency might show up in the world, there are these two big characteristics in borderlineiness. And the first one is instability, and the second one is impulsivity. And borderline is kind of unique among this category of personality disorders in just how extreme a person's emotional instability might be. It's very, very easy for a borderline-ish person to move pretty quickly from different moods, from one to the other, from angry to happy to sad. And then because of that, the world both internally for this person and externally, because there's that lack of a developed sense of security that you were talking about, Dad. There's this real feeling of internal insecurity. The world is constantly changing. Relationships tend to be in flux a lot. There's often a consistent pattern of instability inside of those interpersonal relationships. And also people who have this kind of a personality structure tend to view things in pretty black and white terms and shift relatively quickly from one to the other. And this can sometimes be so extreme that a person might deny that they ever used to be different. They might say something like, no, I've always felt this way. I was just lying to myself before. Is that more or less consistent with your experience,
1: Dad? Oh, very well said. Mm. So I think of it as the hungry heart Mm. on steroids, the hungry heart that is extremely vulnerable to feeling let down. There can be a sense, as a sitting with them as I have, that they're tracking you, and if your eyes look away, as your mm. eyes just did a moment ago, because there was an external sound, they get angry with you. You're not paying attention to me. You're not here. Yeah, there's chronic fear of abandonment. And sure. right, and so, and when you're on the receiving end of this, you can feel like there's this intensity, as in extreme, anxious, insecure attachment, in which that person is being very controlling. Or insistent. There's an intensity of monitoring, a constant, mommy don't go, daddy don't go, even to the point that if the other person starts having thoughts of their own that are different, that too can be really shocking. Mm -hmm. There's a Mm -hmm. term from when you think about narcissism, this compelling need for like mindedness, for the sense that others are like minded with you. They see it your way, they agree with you 100%, they're totally with you. And In this more borderline aspect of that, there's constant insecurity, chronic insecurity. No matter how reassuring the last 10 minutes or 10 years have been, it might also fall apart in the next moment. Mm -hmm. And the unfortunate thing then is that the drive for reassurance as an external source of internal stability, which is the root of the issue, that drive for reassurance in various kinds can push others away just when you really, really need them the most, which is really quite poignant, even tragic.
0: Yeah, there's this common dynamic that I think I learned from you, Dad, way back when, probably when I was in some relationship or another, uh, that you described as the pursuer-distancer dynamic, which is this very, very common model that appears in relationships where you have a pursuer and a distancer. It's exactly what it sounds like where one person is kind of constantly seeking the attention, affection, desire, interest of the other, and then the other person has more of a desire for personal autonomy. Maybe one Mm. of these people, the pursuer, wants a lot of intimacy, whereas the other person, the distancer, wants a lot of autonomy. And the more intimacy that the pursuer seeks for, the more autonomy that the distancer looks for. And you can see that really
1: emerge inside of borderline-ish relationships. Yeah, really, really well said. And that's why it has helped me, Mm -hmm. you know, working with people to keep coming back to that desperate, collapsing three-year-old child. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's so understandable. What that child wants, let's say, perfect union, Mm -hmm. perfect rapport, perfect like-mindedness is, yes, desirable when you're one or two or three years old, but it's impossible in complex adult relationships with individuated partners. And there will often be a kind of dynamic in which there is someone, let's say person A, person B, let's say person A is a kind of highly stable, even to the point of being a little maybe boring or are
0: you calling me out right now,
1: Dad? You're turning at at me over here? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, but someone who, well, you know, someone who's really quite stable. I, and, for the record, I would
0: refer to myself as quite stable, maybe even to the degree of being boring. So maybe I'm
1: calling myself oh, okay, out there, okay. That okay, I, no. I, I was a surprise. <laughs> I, I didn't expect that.
0: Stability is definitely part of myself, I don't Okay, okay. okay. <laughs> and has their
1: act together. They're grounded. They're rooted. Yeah. They're functional in the world. They have an income. And in other words, they, they have a lot of stability and a lot of regulation, and they don't, they don't seem to have intense needs for themselves. So therefore, they can be quite generous, quite available mm-hmm. to the other person who forms a relationship with someone, person B, let's say, who's got a vulnerability, borderline tendencies. Think of someone who has a kind of whose psychological personality structure is like a ball with a crust. And the crust is solid. It's functioning and in certain situations that don't challenge it. Everything is fine. But if you start moving into territory that's more about intimate relationships that have elements that really reach all the way back to early childhood in terms of the stakes on the table in an intimate relationship, well, you can sometimes crack through that crust, Mm -hmm. fall through that Mm -hmm. shell, and there's no interpersonal, there's no internal psychological structure till you fall for years developmentally all the way down to someone who's a toddler deep down inside. Okay. So that person, let's say, sometimes can be fairly dramatic, interesting, lively, interpersonally astute, extravagant, charming, appealing in wonderful, wonderful ways. So then you have these two people who come together and then sometimes what can happen is that the person who's more vulnerable, especially when they crack through their shell to that really activated young, young, young layer inside can become quite demanding. And the first few times it happens, the other person thinks, oh, wow, I must have really blown it. I'm so sorry. You're really pretty upset about this. I guess that means I messed up pretty big time. I'm, I'm trying to understand it. That's reassuring. But what that can do and if you get caught in this as a therapist, as I have at times, it can create a kind of vicious cycle in which now the B person, the more borderline person, has had a sense of reassurance. There's been this test, their partner, their friend, their sibling, their parent passed the test, which then activates even stronger buried longings for closeness and even fusion and meshment with the other person. So they raise the stakes a little bit. Now the test gets higher and harder. So their partner or the other person in the situation is now faced with a more intense test. The critique seems a little overstated over at the top. It's kind of confusing. So they pass the test the second time by being really, really, really reassuring very embarrassed, very apologetic, they bend over backwards, they walk on eggshells for a while, which reassures the B person, who then escalates further. Sure, yeah, I see where you're getting here. And even escalates to the point of a kind of preemptive strike on the devastating disappointment of the relationship by forcing a disruption in the relationship sooner rather than later. Because if they become as dependent, let's say, as they were naturally when they were one or two or three years old, if they become that dependent on this person in an adult relationship today, and that person leaves them, scorns them, exiles them, oh my gosh, that would be so, so horrible. Can't possibly tolerate that. It better escalate early on to get it over with. I'm certain that some people listening here are nodding along and going, wow, right now in this or whoa, been there? On either side of the coin. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. So what I can say about that is that I've had relationships with people who absolutely had tendencies in this direction. A lot of the patterns that you're describing were ones that I've absolutely lived. And what stood out to me in people who had these characteristics is that underlying feeling of instability, how things move from being fantastic to being awful in a very, very brief period of time, and how even fairly small interactions can lead to really complete emotional collapses in another person that feel very disconnected from what's going on in the moment and seem to have a lot more to do With that person's personal history or what's happened to them in the past and so on. With that as context, though, I just want to take a moment to say here that full blown borderline personality disorder is diagnosed about 3 million times a year in the United States, I believe. That's really frequent. And we're talking about not BPD, we're talking about traits, tendencies, vibes in a particular kind of direction. And much as we all have narcissistic traits, and those traits are just kind of built into people, most people, I would imagine 90, 95%-ish of people have some borderline-ish traits. I've got some borderline-ish traits, and I would say that I'm probably not hitting any of those nine features that you named in terms of the clinical diagnostic criteria, but I can feel a part of me using the language of ifs here for a second, maybe a younger, more vulnerable part that is absolutely searching for that kind of deep, intimate joining with another person. Yeah. And I say that because we're not trying to pathologize this or to make somebody feel bad for being this way. These are all ways that people are out in the world. And there are aspects of them that are really quite typical. Yeah. But if we have these styles, it's good to come into relationship with the reality of that so we can start kind of figuring out what to do about it. So to summarize a lot of what we've talked about so far, we're looking at a situation where a person experiences intense emotional swings, where they've got big-time fears of abandonment and a deep relational insecurity that underpins those fears of abandonment. And also probably situations where somebody doesn't really feel super internally stable. Maybe there's a little bit of even like gifted childish stuff going on in there, kind of like we've talked about in a previous episode, where somebody doesn't really have a strong feeling for who they are separate from other people, which can be the real foundation for that relational insecurity. Who am I when you're not around? Finding that sense of self in another. So those are some of the major characteristics. When you've worked with people who had those buckets of traits, what are some of the practices that you found be particularly helpful for them?
1: The real to me crux of it is regulation and nurturance. Mm. On the regulation side, it's to be really careful, <laughs> you know, when you're getting hijacked by let's say that 3-year-old anxious insecure on steroids module inside, try to recognize that and not act it out catastrophically. Mm. It's one thing, for example, to fall on the floor and cry. It's another thing to throw a knife at somebody. Regulation, really important. And what a person can do over time is try to shore up various systems in the body that are regulatory, that maybe are much more accessible initially than something that's psychological. like Mm. Regulate your gastrointestinal system, regulate your immune system, regulate your hormonal system, do the best you reasonably and sensibly can. This is not a trivial step to take. And it's one that often in the beginning is much more accessible before getting into more psychological stuff. It also is really useful for a person to train in things that are regulatory, like mindfulness or the cultivation of a kind of witnessing. That can step back from the reactions, labeling the reactions. That's my inner, you know, tantrumer. That's my inner hungry little kid. Just to be able to name it, to tame it. In as the saying puts it. So this is really helpful. Learning how to calm the body, learning how to just settle down, learning how to take ten breaths, each one with long exhalations. And then there's the nurture inside, which gets at the deep mm. root of it. The regulation aspect does get at some of the root of it, but there are many, many, many people who have by nature a spirited, excitable, sensitive temperament who don't have the relational hunger and the deep sense of not being glued together deep down inside that characterizes someone that's more on the borderline spectrum. So, nurturance, look for any which way you can to truly internalize the social supplies coming your way. And as you and I have talked about a lot, we wrote about it a lot in Resilient, and I've written about it elsewhere as well. Look for opportunities to take in the good when others are present with you, when they are in rapport, when they are loyal to you, when they do care about you, when they're still in the game, even if you are getting kind of upset, right? Slow it down to take that in. And I have had the clinical experience frequently with people who said, basically, I wanna be loved. And yet when we really explore ways that they actually are loved and liked and included and appreciated and seen, they push away those supplies because those supplies maybe activate intense longings for love that they anticipate will end in disappointment and betrayal and disaster, or because at some level, they are not willing to exercise their willpower for 5 or 10 seconds to slow down and just stay with the experience of someone being caring. Sometimes because it's hard to shift their psychological gaze from the other person outside them to their own interior, even for 10 seconds. Because like a child, who is insecure, who stops monitoring the caregiver for even a few seconds, then the caregiver could go away. But if the person is willing to engage the process of understanding themselves without pathologizing themselves, Mm -hmm. just on a factual basis with compassion that you talked about for us, and also bring to bear increases of regulation, and also bring to bear a few minutes each day at a minimum, but a few real minutes each day, the internalization of healthy social supplies, there really can be a healing over time. So that to me kind of charts a course uh, that a person can take in a very summary way. I'm summarizing a lot of stuff here, but that can really foster a healing and a beautiful, well-deserved kind of homecoming to feeling good about yourself as a person and fundamentally stable inside so that there's an ongoingness of well-being deep down inside Mm, yourself. mm -hmm.
0: Those two ideas of regulation and nurturance together actually reminded me of some of the, sometimes they're called third-wave behavior therapies, things like ACT or DBT, that are often based on, in DBT it's referred to as a synthesis of opposites or an integration of opposites. Mm. And DBT was actually a therapeutic approach. This is dialectical behavior therapy that I I think was largely born out of the attempt to treat people yeah. who had very, very strong borderline tendencies. And it begins with radical acceptance of the person's current level of functioning before moving on to what are called like change-oriented strategies. In other words, ways to deal with the way that things are. And that actually sounds quite similar to what you were saying, Dad, where on the one hand, you want to regulate those underlying tendencies that you might have or that another person might have. And on the other hand, you want to feed the hungry bee, right? Like if these tendencies are based on on this deep internalized feeling of emotional insecurity, then the best way to have the tendencies go away is by teaching somebody that they can feel more secure and more stable inside of their relationships. I do have a question for you based on that though, because earlier you were talking about for somebody with really strong borderline tendencies, how receiving any nurturance at all can actually almost activate a sort of spiraling where they search for more and more and more nurturance. How do you give this in good ways without feeding into that kind of a paradigm?
1: It's a really tricky business. Yeah. And I, early on in my therapeutic career, was in situations kind of like a death spiral.
0: Yeah, yeah, no.
1: Snowball rolling down a hill. The more I was trying to be present and apologetic and acknowledging my part in the matter, it just got worse,
0: right? Yeah.
1: So Marsha Linehan, who created DBT and is one of the great heroes in uh, clinical psychology in the 20th century, now still in the 21st, what she would do is establish boundaries mm. pretty early on. We're starting to slide into what can a person do when they're in a relationship with someone who has pretty strong Borderline vulnerabilities, let's say, and so in the boundary setting, the person who's providing the nurturance, let's say, from the outside, basically says, "I'm sincere. I'm offering this, but I'm not offering more." And Marsha would be really blunt. You know, someone like me, you want you feel like you're walking on eggshells. You got to walk on those eggshells. Can't create a disaster. She would just crash through the eggshells, and she'd basically <laughs> say to people, you know, essentially. Things like, uh, you know, as my supervisor a long time ago said to me one time about his attitude about things, if you, the client, are making me crazy, I can't help you, (laughs) right? (laughs) And so I'm not going to be manipulated. I'm not going to be freaked out by your phone calls at two in the morning. I'm just not going to pick up the phone. Now, I'm not saying that we should do that as a hard and fast rule, but it's a setting of boundaries. So to specifically speak to your question With that acceptance aspect that you named initially in DBT, there can be a growing capacity to tolerate the distress of the emotional hunger for a relationship, for love broadly, right? And to tolerate that, the distress of that, then the person can become much more able to actually take in the food for their heart that they need, even if it triggers intense longings for more because now they can tolerate that distress. So in the beginning, there can often be a fair amount of just education. Matter of fact, yep, walks like a duck, quacks like a duck. You're a duck. (laughs) Or who you are is a whole being. And in the totality of the wholeness of you, there's a really important point. There's a duck in your inner zoo, right? There are other things too. Beautiful, caring being, someone who has been wounded, desire for a better world. There are all these animals, <laughs> all these energies, IFS, right? All these inner personalities ourselves, And there is this very intense, powerful duck in you too that we're learning about, we're accepting. There, it's not your fault there's a duck there inside you. This is really, really important. And that duck, as well-intended as it is, is the source of a lot of trouble for you in your relationships, mm-hmm. your jobs, and your your, your sense of yourself. Mm-hmm. And maybe that duckness is also a driver in a related so-called dual diagnosis of substance abuse. Sure, yeah. yeah. So it helps to kind of have that understanding, normalize it, and then we roll up our sleeves and we start to deal with it.
0: Yeah, not to be a parody of myself here or anything, but The longer that I've hung out in mental healthy environments or psychology or whatever else, the greater belief I guess I've gained that pretty much everything starts with acceptance on one level Mm -hmm. or another, accepting where we are, accepting what's true about us, accepting the nature of our condition if we have some kind of a condition that we're trying to change. And then alongside that, the desire to change in some way, yeah. because if you either don't accept it or you don't have the desire to change, you're just not going to get very far here. Correct. And I think that particularly talking from the perspective of partnering somebody with borderline tendencies, whether that partnering is, is a friendship or romantic or a family partnership or whatever's going on, it can be really helpful to be clear-eyed about whether or not that person has a desire to change. Or whether or not that person is willing to accept this mm. aspect of their nature. Yeah. And it can save you, frankly, probably a lot of pain and suffering along the way if you get clear about the reality of, oh, yeah, this person just does not see this fact about themselves and it's going to make their lives
1: potentially really challenging. When I listen to myself here, I can just feel a kind of grief, mm. a subtle background of sorrow, really and a kind of tenderness about this. And nobody wakes up in the morning and says, G.A., I want to have a borderline personality disorder today. And there's a lot of suffering in this territory. And there's been a lot of pathologizing, a lot of gendered mistreatment of people, and even misunderstanding, because just because, for example, someone is dramatic and intense and their mood tends to be somewhat volatile and they're sensitive. Mm-hmm. That does not necessarily mean that that person has a personality disorder.
0: Oh yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah, really important to be thoughtful about that. And it's useful to realize that there are certain aspects of these tendencies that are adaptive in certain conditions. It is a way to insist upon and get social supplies. And I can just feel my kind of, I've known numerous people who've really grappled with this inside themselves or had a partner who's grappling with this. It's not easy. And so I I just kind of want to own a certain mm-hmm. compassion and sorrow, I guess, or sorrow and compassion in me about it.
0: Yeah, well, I think that that's actually very positive and very sweet for starters mm-hmm. and kind of a good thing to bring to this conversation as a whole because yeah. this is really tender territory because yeah. what we're really talking about here is extreme sensitivity. Right.
1: Yeah.
0: And sensitivity in many ways is a beautiful thing, and we certainly don't want to tell people that they shouldn't be sensitive or and I, and I think that sensitivity has gotten a bad rap inside of the culture by and large. The ability to be deeply touched is actually a beautiful thing. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't want to be deeply touched, right? And then the question is that aspect of regulation. Um and part of sensitivity is distress. Yeah, people who are sensitive get distressed more and get distressed more easily than those who aren't. Yeah, and one of the things that gets emphasized certainly in DBT, but also in other behaviorist approaches to change, is working with distress tolerance of different mm-hmm. kinds. And that's something that people with this sort of borderlineish structure that we're talking about tend to struggle with. They tend to not have a lot of what we would typically refer to as distress tolerance which is itself a bit of a complicated conversation, Yeah. but maybe setting some of the complexities of it aside for the moment. Have you seen some practices or techniques or Mm ways of thinking, whatever you think would be helpful here, that can help people develop a little bit more more tolerance of painful emotions?
1: Being able to label them verbally tends to Mm. turn down the heat. Also, maybe counterintuitively, really feeling them. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And staying with the direct raw sensations of them and the direct feeling of them, rather than going up into the head to analyze them or make excuses Cognitive about them, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. But to just feel it, it kind of grounds it out. If you are yeah. able to just feel it, then often it just kind of flows through you, and you're not you're not fighting it. You know what we resist, persists, and so forth. That's that. Being able to really Feel centered in a place inside of being, you know, a place inside that feels stable and has an inherent kind of well being in it. And from that refuge, look at the painful, horrible, disruptive feelings. That is incredibly helpful. That's one of the main fruits of meditation because we come home to that home base and then we gradually build out that refuge so we can find it more readily and stay in it more lengthily, even when Mm -hmm. the storms come. Mm -hmm. So that's really helpful. Social support, certainly. Reaching out to other people, important. If I were really upset about something, you are one of the first people I would call. Oh, that's very sweet, Dad. Thank you, yeah, likewise. You're on my short list. (laughs) I got you on the speed (laughs) dial next to my bedside (laughs) table. (laughs) Anyway, so that's all really important. Finding a way. To ask for what you need without being overwhelming, yeah, and take yeah, it that's in when you get it. Yeah, yeah. That if I were to, if you said, okay, Rick, you get three wishes for people who grapple with these tendencies, what would they be? It'd be one: uh, learn how to ask for what you need without being overwhelming. Number two: really, really take it in when you got it, and number three really remember, no matter how volatile it feels inside, that you are a fundamentally good person. Mm. Because there's a lot of shame that gets in the mix here. Yeah, I think that's a
0: great list. All of these things are kind of a spectrum, right? Yeah. Where on the one hand, we have people who have no real feeling for their feelings. Yeah. They're cut off from them. They're super repressed. They're excessively controlled and regulated. On the other hand, we have people who have a deeply intimate relationship with their feelings, perhaps Mm -hmm. even a little too intimate of a relationship. And we want to be in authentic relationship with the way that we actually feel. Suppression is a losing strategy. But there is this space here where we have enough space between our emotions to be able to see them call them what they are, feel them fully, and then to steal some language from Terry Real here, take their hands off the wheel of the car. Yeah, And I think that that's that's where all the magic is here. Can we create enough space so we're able to take the hands off the wheel of the car?
1: As we kind of approach an end here, maybe it would be helpful to talk about, gee, what can you do when you start to get that feeling? this new person you've been dating. Sure. Whoa, there's something different going on here. Got some tendencies. Yeah, Uh, what to do about that, so. Yeah, totally. It often can happen that you meet someone and they're functional. They're not conspicuously someone who would tick some of those nine boxes that we went through in the very beginning. And then you're with them for a while and it all seems to be going just fine. And then something happens. And their reaction seems really way out of proportion to what happened. So you check yourself. Hey, am I in denial? Am I being defensive? You know, maybe you ask another person or two. What do you think? And you start getting more and more of a sense of, wow, there's something going on here beneath the surface. So you start having those feelings and you begin to ask yourself, wow, is there something going on here? It can be really helpful to think to yourself when it's true, oh, I'm dealing with a, someone who's high-functioning, who also, when you're in that particular channel, you know, nine out of 10 of their channels are wise, wonderful, charming, loving, and then there's this one channel, especially when they're vulnerable maybe, you know, then you can start to recognize, oh, I see, I see increasingly, What I'm dealing with here. Mm -hmm. And then what's really helpful is to do things, which for me are the sweet spot, where you find this combination of two things in which you are rested in an authentic goodwill for them. You see the good in them. You're not leaving the relationship. You're rested there, while at the same time, you have boundaries and you are not gonna get caught up in these scripts of placating them or proving to them that you really do care as they escalate the proofs that they require. You're just not gonna do that. You're just not gonna do that. And you could be really quite straightforward about it. You could just say, look, the truth is, I, I know how I feel about you, and I'm not gonna try to prove it to you. Mm-hmm. I like you, I respect you, I'm glad we're working together on these things. That's all really, really true for me. And I'm checked out after six o'clock. I'm going to eat dinner. I'm going to relax. I'm I'm just not going to answer the phone after that time, really under any conditions. You know, I have some boundaries there. And also, I know that I'm not evil. I know that I'm not hateful toward you. I know those things. I'm not going to try to prove that to you. If you feel... Like, you really want to think that way about me? I can't stop you. But I know it's really true for me deep down inside. Mm, mm. I actually find that there's something, it's like the good parenting. The parent with a tantruming, wounded, hungry two-year-old who basically says, I know, sweetie, I know. I get it. I get it. I was not here. I'm here now. And I love you. I care about you. I respect you. I like you. I'm your friend. I'm here. And you can know that about me. So in effect, if the root issue is insecure, anxious attachment, when you are with someone who's being somewhat hijacked or is vulnerable to these borderline qualities, it's helpful for you to be the kind of parent they never had. Not that you're Mm -hmm. presuming to be their parent, but you can rest in that combination of being loving or caring, let's say, while not being pushed around. And it's really helpful, especially if you're a kind, empathic person who is exactly the kind of person that someone with borderline tendencies is drawn to, Mm -hmm. because you're the kind of person that could give them what was missing when they were young. If you're that kind of person, watch out for this feeling inside yourself that somehow you've become a bad dad (laughs) or a bad mom with this other person, in I'm using that term kind of broadly, loosely, when you really haven't. Mm, mm-hmm. Maybe the first two, three cycles, first two, three rounds with this other person, you sort of take it on board that you messed up. But by the fourth time, you start to realize, no, actually, I haven't messed up at all. Mm. And it's important to just not identify with that and to kind of push that away, sort out how to be more skillful maybe the next time, but to not internalize what that Borderline ish person is projecting upon you from their own history. And they can be very effective in that projecting, mm. but you don't have to believe it or buy it. Another is to protect yourself from situations where the other person could get into a rage that could be quite destructive. Extremes of this can be forms of stalking that can become violent, you know, particularly if it's a male borderline person. So it can get kind of weird. Potentially protect yourself, protect yourself. Sometimes you'd be stunned by a person that you thought was a certain way who turns on a dime. Hmm. And now they are in the devaluation and exile side of the coin. You know, just be careful, take care of yourself, manage your boundaries, and be clear eyed about what you're dealing with.
0: For me, a big theme that always emerges in these conversations around. Deep personality tendencies that people have, and particularly around being in relationship with somebody who has these deep personality tendencies, is at times kind of a frankness around the extent to which other people are going to change. Mm. And an acceptance of certain aspects of their nature, yeah. and a clarity that their nature is their nature not your nature. Very good. And I think that that's really, really important to hold on to. This is their nature, not my nature. And therefore, if they're coming at me with a certain form of content, it's really appropriate for me to be able to differentiate my actions from how they're receiving those actions. Now, Mm -hmm. of course, we want to be kind and caring and empathic people, and that's how you become a good partner is by being a kind and caring and empathic person. But also to be clear-eyed about like, look, this is the way this other person is. And they're putting in efforts to change, but there might be some limitations there. And then you get real about, okay, am I along for the ride for this or am I not? And it can be very understandable and rational to make a choice either way, depending on the nature of your relationship with the person, depending on their other aspects or elements that you find enjoyable or not, whatever it is. And I would just really empower people to feel like they can make their own choices about this that's it right. doesn't make you a bad person to not give somebody with a, a certain kind of tendency everything that they have ever wanted and you need to draw the boundaries for yourself here and that is a huge part of this
1: that's so well said for us oh, thank you and i'm reversing the role here by saying <laughs> that's a wonderful place to end
0: Hey, well, there you go. Yeah, I really enjoyed having this conversation with you, Dad. It, it's a subtle one talking about this stuff because we just want to be careful and respectful in how we talk about it. Yeah, because it is so easy for any conversation around mental health or disorder or personality condition or this like heavy language that people ascribe to this stuff to become very pathologizing. Yeah, and really loaded toward a view of a person as broken in some way and also unfixable. We're trying to avoid falling into any of those pitfalls. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just going to close here with some optimistic content maybe for somebody who struggles with their own tendencies or is in relationship with somebody who does. Two fun facts. First, for a long time, Borderline was basically viewed as untreatable. This was the way that somebody was and there's nothing you can do about it. That's super untrue. Mm. A lot of evidence these days that borderline is actually highly treatable, particularly if the person in question is invested in their own treatment and recovery. Second thing, really interesting, a lot of people just outgrow this stuff. Mm. Really, really interesting piece of research that I bumped into is that as people age, the proclivity Mm. toward borderline tendencies goes down and down and down over time. Yeah, Particularly the tendency toward impulsivity that really tends to drop as age kicks in. So, you know, if you're in a relationship with somebody or you yourself have these tendencies and you're going, man, when will this ever end? Or is there anything I can do? There are things you can do. And there is actually a pretty optimistic outlook particularly if you're 32 or 35 and thinking about this, well, this is one of those things that does tend to get a little bit better as people age. Today, we talked about what it means to have borderline tendencies, including what people can do about them inside of themselves, and also how we can build healthier relationships with people who have their own borderline tendencies. Formal diagnosis of borderline personality disorder should always be done with a medical professional who is working directly with the person in question. It should not be done through listening to a podcast. So please really be very careful about this. That said, we all have different sets of tendencies, and some people are going to have tendencies in this more borderline direction. And BPD is characterized by two big features, instability and impulsivity. This includes a really pervasive pattern of instability in a person's interpersonal relationships, their self-image, their moods, and their emotions, and also a lot of impulsivity that's present in a variety of different kinds of contexts. The reactions from somebody who has borderline are generally really excessive, inappropriate, or extreme. And they're often founded on deep feelings of emotional insecurity, which can include fears of abandonment. People with borderline tendencies live in a chronic fear of real or perceived abandonment. They are hypersensitive to rejection and criticism, and they have a tendency to overreact to some fairly minor slights. All of our tendencies come from a combination of nature and nurture. And there's some evidence that borderline tendencies fall a little bit more on the nature side of the spectrum than some of the other tendencies that we've talked about on the podcast. But clearly there are nurture parts to this as well, and Rick spent a fair amount of time during the episode talking about what the foundations of borderline might be in a person's personal history. Maybe they had a parent who is inconsistent or unreliable or themselves grappling With these tendencies and over time this led the child to feel insecure inside of the relationship with the parent maybe the child was never able to truly fill the hole in the heart and this just kept on being the case as they aged now fortunately there are many different approaches for working with borderline tendencies one of the best of which is dbt or dialectical behavior therapy and this focuses on two major elements On the one hand, radical acceptance and validation of a person's current level of functioning, emotional state, and so on. And then second, a real focus on change and growth. So we have acceptance of the nature of reality on the one hand, and then a movement towards something different on the other. And this approach is really consistent with some of the recommendations that Rick made during our conversation, particularly his emphasis on emotional regulation on the one hand, and then nurturance on the other. We all need to learn how to regulate our emotions. And the stronger our emotions are, the more important it becomes to learn how to regulate them effectively. Now, regulation doesn't mean repression. And for many people, the first tendency is to just push their strong emotions down when they experience them. But a piece of advice that Rick gave that stuck with me is that it can actually be helpful for people to sit in a full experience of their strong emotions for a safe period of time. Of course, you want to be careful about this. You don't want to re-traumatize yourself. But really feeling your feelings can actually be remarkably freeing for people and can help those feelings move and change and transform. And then on the other hand, there's this aspect of nurturance. Of course, we all want to be loved and cared for by other people. At least I certainly want that. And I think that most other people do as well. But for people who have more borderline tendencies, they have a very hard time internalizing this real feeling of security in the love and nurturance of other people. They need to be reminded of it much more frequently. And when it comes along, they have to really go out of their way to deliberately internalize it and let it sink into them. Coming from the perspective of somebody in relationship with a person with more borderline tendencies, there is this aspect of boundary setting that's really important. You can nurture and nurture and nurture, but at the end of the day, you also have to be very real about the limitations of your influence on another person. And you can say to them something to the effect of, I am very clear about how much I love you. I have said to you very clearly how much I love you, but I can't make you feel loved by me. All I can do is express it authentically to you and show you in real ways out in the world that this is how I feel. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to it through whatever platform you're listening to it right now on, maybe even leave a rating and a positive review, which really helps us out. And you can also tell a friend about it. It's probably the best way we have to reach new people. If you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple dollars a month, you can support the show and you'll get a bunch of bonuses in return. Finally, a little reminder. My partner, Elizabeth, recently started a new podcast. It's titled My Therapist's A Witch, and you can find it Probably wherever you get your podcasts, it's definitely on iTunes and Spotify. I think it's great stuff. If you enjoy being well, you'll probably enjoy listening to it as well. Until next time, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.